invite you to join me now and do as we do every Sunday and taking our copy of God's Word, His perfect and faithful Word, and we turn back again to the back of the Bible, to the book of Revelation. And this morning we'll look at Revelation chapter 2, 12 through 17. So, Revelation 2, 12 through 17. And we are coming into the third church of our study of the seven churches that Jesus addresses here at the beginning of Revelation. Chapter 1 is about uh, the Apostle John being on the island of Patmos and being taken to heaven in a vision. And chapter 2 begins with the first church we will refer to as the first ARP church of Ephesus. And we saw that they were a church who was doing a lot of the right things. We see, we see it from the outside and we think, that's a good church. They have a lot of good things going on. But Jesus, in this letter, exposes their hearts. And the problem with the heart of that church is their heart was no longer given over to Jesus. They had stopped loving him. So, so for all the good things they were doing, all, all the purpose and the reason for doing the right things had become faulty. They, it was, it, the things they were doing, their purpose, it was for their glory. And it was for the glory of being theologically right and doctrinally correct. They had all their ducks in a row, but none of the ducks pointed to Jesus. So Jesus calls them to repent. He says, return back to your first works. And we talked about those first works were how they were planted in the means of grace to be a people and a church of word, prayer, sacrament, and fellowship because these are the means that enable the church to live in the love and glory of our Lord and Savior. And last Sunday we looked at the second church, the first ARP church of Smyrna. And Jesus commends them. Because they had never stopped loving Jesus. They had never, they had never moved away from the means of grace. So Jesus says, good job, you're doing well. Keep on trucking, keep on doing what you're doing. Because you've done well under these hardships, but there's even more hardships coming your way. And the only way they can endure these hardships is to keep on doing what they're doing. Love Jesus first and most. And be a church and is committed to him through word, prayer, sacrament, and fellowship. So that brings us this morning to the third church, the Pergamum Church. So as we prepare to read this passage, let's go now to the Lord together in prayer. Lord, we pray to you, because you are our good God and Father. And we ask that you might forgive all of our faults and offenses. That you would send your Holy Spirit here to illuminate us so we may truly understand your word as you want us to. Give us your grace, the grace that we need to handle this word rightly, for your glory, for the good of this church, and for the good of our salvation. And so we ask these things now in the name of our only and blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. Let's stand together now for the reading of God's word. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum writes, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, 
who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And the grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. If you can think back with me a few Lord's days, we looked at the first church, ARP church in Ephesus, and I said that many Christians tend to come to the book of Revelation and read it as if it's a crystal ball. A crystal ball that will allow them a glimpse into the future to, to see what will happen. And so we come to this book, we, we think it's a crystal ball, and it will answer questions for us such as, who is the Antichrist? And in my 46 years of living, and about 40 of them spent in the church, the Antichrist has been... Mikhail Gorbachev, Gorbachev has been Saddam Hussein, has been Osama bin Laden, has been a politician you don't like. We've looked at the crystal ball and we keep on looking to see who the Antichrist is. And we've got to find him. And we ask, well, well, when will Armageddon take place? When will all this take place? And it was going to take place in the first Persian Gulf War. And then it was going to take place in, in the second time we invaded. And then it was going to take place when this happened to Israel. And it's going to take place when, when Russia you, you invaded Ukraine. We, we're always looking for it. And Armageddon has yet to happen. Who will be, who will be the, na- the main players in Armageddon? So far in my life, it's been Russia, Iraq, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Back to Russia? But as we read through the book of Revelation, we find it wasn't written to be a crystal ball. It wasn't written to satisfy our desires of, of what will happen, of this grand picture of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Because here's the thing. Jesus himself tells us, I don't know when I'm coming back. I don't know the day and the time of my second coming. And Paul says, we don't know. So it's going to come like a thief in the night, so be prepared. So so if Jesus can't know this information, then how would we have a crystal ball that would give us this information? Would we dare be so arrogant to say that we would have knowledge that the divine Son of God doesn't have? So the book of Revelation isn't a crystal ball. Its purpose isn't to satisfy our desire to look into the future is there to give us comfort. To give God's people the comfort of knowing that He is sovereign. He is in charge. He's even in charge of history. And He has a plan. He's not making up as He goes along. He has a Christ-exalting and Christ-glorifying plan for the end of history. So we come to the book of Revelation. It enables us to to look at the here and now and know that God's in control. We're still in this history. God has a plan. He's working all things towards good. So no matter what is happening, 
There's one, who's, there's one who's in control. There's one who has a perfect plan, and there's one whose perfect plan is being worked out. So this is a book for our spiritual edification. Not, not for us to be satisfied with, oh, now I know who the Antichrist is. Now I know Armageddon is going to take place on December 14th, 2064, or whatever it may be. For our spiritual edification is to help us grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's what we see in the structure of this book. We're given an introduction in chapter 1 of the Apostle John being taken up from the island of Patmos, taken up into heaven for a, for a revelation, singular, not revelations, revelation, one revelation, singular, a revelation from Jesus Christ. And what's one of the first things Jesus says? I want to talk to my seven churches. Now there is more than seven churches at that time. But he chooses to address these seven churches. And so as we, as we look this morning at the church in Pergamum, we find that Jesus is really asking them to do some reflection. Reflection, where does their strength come from? Where, where, where is their metal? Where does their courage come from? Does it come from them? Do they conjure up their courage? Do they conjure up their strength? Is, is the congregation of First ARP Pergamum that strong? Or does it come from somewhere else? Well, we all know the answer to that question. Of course, their strength and courage or metal comes from somewhere else. And we know it's God. And be more precise, it's from the Spirit of God. That whenever we find a faithful church of Jesus Christ, we find a church where there is the Spirit of God. And the Spirit, He is at work through the means of grace. When God's people individually and corporately are committed to the Word and to prayer, to sacraments and fellowship, then the Holy Spirit will be at work through those means. And we will find a healthy church, we'll find a healthy people. Because they are growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ through being in the Word, through being in prayer, in the sacraments, and in fellowship. This is why we've been emphasizing how important it is that we be the same, that we be committed to the means of grace individually and as a church. Because this is what God has given to us. And this is how He promises to work in and through His people in the church. We, we, we saw that at work in the, in the church in Smyrna. Jesus commenced them. Why? Because they were faithful to Jesus, but their faithfulness to Jesus was merely a response to his perfect and eternal faithfulness to them. They knew Jesus. They loved him. And because they loved him first and most, they sought to obey him in all ways, even by keeping the means of grace. They were doing it well. The first ARP church of Ephesus wasn't. They looked like it, but they had stopped loving Jesus. They are moving away from the true meaning of the means of grace, which means they are moving away from the work of the Holy Spirit, and so they needed to repent of this. And so this morning, this brings us to the church in Pergamum. We find it's a church that's doing well in some ways. In some ways, it isn't. There's some, there's situations somewhat similar to a church in Ephesus. But before we, we look at that in particular, I want us to look at something else. I hope you've noticed over the past few Sundays as we've read through these passages, each of the churches are addressed through an angel. To the angel of church 
in Ephesus, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. What does that mean? In, in, in the Christian church, man, we, we love the idea of angels. And there's all sorts of different aspects of what we call angelology. And so we read something like this and we go, ooh, what's that mean? And I can tell you, you spend 10 minutes on Google, you're going to find some crazy ideas of what this means. But looking at other people who are far smarter and intelligent than I am, there are four different interpretations that are common for this. And we're going to land on one. The angels are seen as either heavenly beings in general, just angels in general, angels who are representatives or guardians over the churches, pastors of the congregation, or they are personifications of the character of the church. So it's kind of varied from each other. So, so how do we land on one? Well, this is where context is important. If you've got your Bible, if you still have it open, turn back to the end of Revelation chapter 1. And we're going to look at verse 20. Where Jesus says this, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So there's your cipher, right? There's your, your biggest clue of, of what Jesus means here. Context is always important. In the book of Revelation, angels are often represented as stars. In the Bible, stars and angels often correspond to rule and government. We see in Genesis 1 and Psalm 136, the stars are placed in the sky to govern the night. We can think of in particular the North Star. Where do we always find the North Star? What direction? The North. Helps govern where we are, right? So the stars are placed in the sky to govern the night. In Job 1.6, angels come before God in his courtroom, in his kind of government section, or government idea. Job 38.7, the, the angels are viewed as morning stars praising God over his creation. So what John is seeing here in his vision is that Jesus, who is the ascended king, who is ruling over all things, has angels there before him in his heavenly courtroom as ministers carrying out his rule. Right? So it's Jesus as the king who has these angels carrying out, his, carrying out his rule. And more specifically, as the angel of these churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, these angels are Christ's hand-selected representatives for them standing before him in heaven. They are there to represent those churches' interests before their great king, Jesus. And so Jesus is opening the book of Revelation by telling each church through this that those churches' interests are known by him and that her heavenly representative shall take care of her. Now here's the wonderful thing. It's not just for the seven churches, it's for every church. These seven churches are representative of all of God's churches. So which means all of God's churches have a heavenly representative. Bethel ARP has an angel who stands in the courtroom of heaven 
before Jesus to represent our needs. I think that then means one thing on a side note. Our view of guardian angels probably needs to be adjusted more from the individual to the corporates. Psalm 34, 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps, encamps around those who feared him and delivers them. So what's being, what's being communicated to these churches is that Jesus knows them. He knows them individually. He knows them specifically. Thus, the unique direct message that Jesus is speaking to each congregation is being written down and given to the representative angel to communicate to them through John and then backed up by their authority. So how encouraging it is to hear this. To the churches that are faithful to Jesus and, and, and to his means of grace, their names will be confessed by Jesus before his Father and the angels. But to those who fail to do so, their lampstand will be removed. In other words, to the church, the ultimate message is either shine like a light, shine like a star, shine like an angel in this dark world, or know you will ultimately be destroyed. So when we think about it this way, I think it puts church in a different light, and our commitment to it doesn't. How serious is God about the church? He gives each of us an angel to represent us in the courtroom of heaven. God takes church seriously, and so should we. So with that in mind, we begin to look at this letter to the church in Pergamum. What do we know about Pergamum? Well, it was a city of about 55 miles away from Smyrna. So we're seeing these, these churches are all kind of the same general area. But one of the distinctions about Pergamum is that in the middle of the city was this big hill. And on top of that hill sat temples. And these temples were there to pagan gods. And, and so the view of the temple would dominate the city. So no matter where you were in the city, you would look up and you would see these temples dedicated to the pagan, to the pagan gods. <clears throat> so which means that Christians in Pergamum were always living in the shadow of false religions, both literally and figuratively. They were living in the shadow of false religion, as we will see in a moment, that was persecuting them. And we don't know the size of the Christian community there, but the overall consensus is that it was rather small. They were very much a minority, outnumbered by the majority of pagans around them. But we're given a clue right from the beginning about their situation, about the situation of the church in Pergamum, because Jesus describes himself in a rather descriptive way here. He hasn't before. Look again at verse 12. He says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Does that description sound familiar to you? Well, we can think of Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than what? Any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints, of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There's obviously a reason why Jesus introduces himself in this manner. And we're going to talk about it more in a moment. But it helps set the stage, and it helps reinforce to us how important the Bible is to us as God's people and as his church. It is of vital importance to us, of such importance that Jesus describes himself in the language of Scripture. 
They would have had the book of Hebrews at Pergamum. They may have been in the middle of a sermon series on the book of Hebrews when they received this letter. And it's a reminder of how important God's word is. And when you move away from God's word, who are you moving away from? You're moving away from Jesus. The moment we begin to move away from God's word, we move away from the one who personifies himself as being the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. And the sad thing about this is we have illustrations of this all around us in our day and age. Of churches and denominations that have moved away from God's word, that has moved away from Jesus and never ends well for them. A major denomination has been in the news for the past couple of weeks because of how much it has died in the past few years. So mainstream media picks up on this and begins to do stories about why is this church, which was a dominant church, a dominant denomination in the 20th century, why is it flailing? Why is it dying? And the consensus is they left the word. They left Jesus. So we're already being set up for uh, for something very important. So let's look at this. Uh, what's the first thing that Jesus tells this church and, com- and Christian community? I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Jesus gets very real. He gets very personal with them very quickly. He says to them, I know exactly where you are. I know exactly what you're going through. I know all the hardships that you have living in a pagan place like Pergamum. And these are words of comfort to them. Because imagine if we can, if we can put ourselves in the shoes of the people in Pergamum, what it's like to live in a community where you're literally living in a shadow of pagan temples. And you're figuratively living in a shadow of pagan temples. And you've got all these people who are set against you. At some point, we're going to be tempted to think, does Jesus even remember us? Does, Does Jesus even care about us anymore? And what does he say here? Yes, I know where you dwell. That's a personal, it's a personal statement. That God knows exactly what's going on with them. Not only where they are, but what is happening in their lives. And he knows the extent of it. Because how does he describe their hometown? I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. How's that for a slogan for your hometown billboard? Welcome to Winsboro, the home of Satan's throne. We hope you enjoy your visit. Now, because we don't believe that about Winsboro, hope we don't. But that's what Jesus is saying. I know where you are, I know where you live. It's where Satan lives. And so he's reassuring them, not only he knows where they, where they live, what's going on, he knows exactly what's going on. He knows how dominated it is by pagan and false religions, and he hasn't forgotten them. But I think this serves as a good reminder for us about the work of Satan. That Satan is fine with people being religious. Satan is fine about people going to church, looking nice at church, and acting like Christians as long as they're not Christians. 
He's, he's fine with people coming to church on Sunday mornings, singing hymns, and listening to sermons, as long as it's not about being faithful to Christ alone. Dr. Barnhouse, who was a former pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, once asked a question, what would things look like if Satan really took control of the city? He speculated, I think it's fascinating. He speculated that if Satan took over a city like Philadelphia, all the bars would be closed, there would be no pornography, all the streets would be clean, be filled with pedestrians who smiled at each other, there would be no swearing, all the children would say yes sir and no ma'am, and all the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. Satan would be fine with a thousand churches in town filled with nominal people as long as none of them made Jesus front and center most important. And he'd certainly not be committed to means of grace, people, and church. And the sad thing is, he's getting his way, isn't he? There are plenty of churches, denominations, that look good, but there's no Jesus in them. And we know how Jesus feels about that here, don't we? That's Satan's temple. So with all this happening, what does Jesus commend the Pergamon Christians for? You hold fast my name, and you did not, you did not, you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was good, killed among you, where Satan dwells. They went bush from the truth of Jesus. They rooted themselves in the word and they were true to it even amidst a tribulation of where Satan dwells. We don't know what the tribulation was. We don't know what pressure was applied to them, but we know it was there. And for the most part, they stuck to the Bible and they wouldn't budge. So much so that one of them, Antipas, was killed. Why was he killed? Because he held fast to my name He did not deny my faith. He was a witness to the goodness of God. So Jesus commends them. Y'all have not budged on the essential truth of who I am and what I've done for my people. He commends them for their faithfulness. They loved him first. They loved his word. Even when it had been easy for them not to do so. But there's an issue with this. Verses 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you. <clears throat> Imagine you're sitting there on a Sunday and that's read out to your church. I commend you, but there's a few things I have against you. Make your heart chill. What are the things? You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual morality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So we're given the idea that the Pergamum church were faithful, uh, they stuck to God's word, but they had people in church who were heretical, who were teaching wrong things, and they were tolerating it. The Pergamums will say, all right, look, we don't like it, but we're going to tolerate it. Maybe we won't let them teach Sunday school, or we won't let them teach Sunday school in these passages. Maybe we won't let them do this. But they tolerate this bad teaching. And not bad in the sense of delivery, 
bad in the sense that it's, it's heretical, it's blasphemous. And so he, he's talking about this in terms of the Nicolaitan group that we talked about in the book of Ephesus, or I'm sorry, the, the church of Ephesus, that they held to the teachings of Balaam. And now he specifically references Balaam here. So, so we have a good idea of what the problem is. And if you don't remember the story of Balaam, we would find it back in Numbers 22 through 24. Balaam had to get the prophecy. He was known for this gift. So the king of Moab summons Balaam to curse the Israelites. Now Balaam at first was prohibited by God from going, but the king kept on sending for him, and again he was refused. But at length, Balaam goes. And every time he opened his mouth to, to give curses, blessings came out instead. It goes further. Greed takes over. And it caused Balaam to make other, another plan. And that's to get Moabite girls to come and to seduce the married men of Israel. He yielded to the temptations of riches and honor, which Balak set before him. Now, now taking that story and putting it in context here, the sin that Jesus is referring to here is the sin of allowing the world to define your faith. Balaam sank into that. Here's a pagan king who keeps on trying to get him over. He's refused, he's refused, but then eventually Balaam gives it all up. He's greedy. He wants what's being offered to him. And that's what's happening here at the Pergamum church. Some of his members were becoming too much like the world around them. They weren't wholly faithful to Jesus' word. They were riding the fence. They're going to be faithful to Jesus over here for these things, but over here, not so much. They weren't 100% committed to Jesus. Before we, you know, look at them and shake our fingers and say, shame, 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 we find it can be easy for us to stick to biblical principles when it comes to, uh, to some particular issues. We want to fudge on others. We'll be biblical about who Jesus is, right? If somebody says so, Jesus is the Son of God, we go, uh-uh, those are fighting words. No, Jesus is the Son of God. And somebody says so, so Jesus didn't come to, to bring salvation, we go, oh, there's even more fighting words. No, 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 no. This is what the Bible says, right? We're not going to budge on the deity of Jesus. We're not going to budge on the divinity of Jesus. We're not going to budge on the work of Jesus. But, but, when the Bible tells us this is how we should live our lives, this is how we should raise our children, this is how we should set our priorities, these are the sins we should be dying to, then we go, ah, mm, not so much. Then we're more comfortable about having, the world having more influence than the Bible. This is, this, this is a 21st century family. This is, this is what we've got to do to make our way in the world. And look, I like to have fun. Everybody likes to have fun. Jesus will forgive me of this sinful indiscretions because I just like to have fun. So who do we become? We become the Pergamums. We're rooted in God's word here. We're running away from God's word over here. That's a serious place to be. As Jesus tells in verse 16, to repent. Very simply, repent. Turn away from this sin and return to me. 
And Jesus calls us to still to do the same. When we've allowed the world to be more influenced than him, then we need to repent. We need to turn from that sin and turn back to Jesus. And he says here that repentance, we, we turn back to God's work. What was the best antidote to Satan and to his work? To be faithful to God and his word. How does God destroy error? It's through the truth of his word because his word always points us to Jesus, the one who has defeated Satan's works, the one who did battle for Satan for us. We turn to the word, we're pointed to Jesus, and we avoid error that way. But the longer we choose not to repent, and the longer we stay away from God's word, the further we fall into sin, as that saying says, sin will take you further than you ever want to go, keep you there longer than you ever wanted to, and will cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. Is it worth it? Is the ways of the world worth hell? Is denying Jesus worth the flames of hell? That's what the Pergamum's had to decide on. And Jesus gives them two incentives to turn to him. He reminds them of hidden manna. He reminds us of God's provision in the days of Exodus, sufficient for each new day. And the same promise is true for us. God will always provide for us what we need. We in turn are to be faithful and obedient by keeping the means of grace for the glory of Christ. This is a white stone. In the judicial systems at that time, the jurors would vote for acquittals with a white stone and conviction with a black stone. And so this white stone reminded we are acquitted of our sin through Jesus Christ. It's like he has given us his own white stone, showing our innocence in him and in his work. And because of this manna and because of this white stone, we now have a new name. A new name that's known to God. A new name we will have for eternity. A new name that identifies us as one who has been saved by Christ. And what is this all based upon? Being a people of God's word. Being a church of God's word. By my count, we have two stained glass windows in here that have pictures of the Bible in them. And all day long, the light shines through those stained glass windows, highlighting the Bibles. That is who we are supposed to be. God's light shining through us as a people of his word, as we stay in his word, and we are a light to those, to the world around us. As long as we are a people of the word. Pray with me.